0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ring of Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations and secured 70 award wins, including Outstanding Drama Series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, January 8th. It's a new year. It's going to be an eventful one for the entertainment business, I think. Last year was sort of a lost year with the strikes. Everyone I talked to wants a reboot in 2024. Fresh start. It's going to be kind of tough, but a bunch of the dramas that we've been following on this show are about to come to a head for the big companies. In April, the tax rules expire and Warner Brothers Discovery will be able to sell itself or merge with another media company. Disney has to figure out how to reverse its recent creative problems at Marvel and elsewhere fend off a bunch of activist investors. Paramount is clearly in trouble, and Comcast has to decide whether it's a buyer or a seller of its entertainment assets. That's not even mentioning the tech companies that now dominate Hollywood. So for today, our first show of the year with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg, we're going to ask each other a couple burning questions, see what we think is going to happen on topics like Disney, NBA rights, an award season, and more. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas.
0: Good to see you. We were together last night uh, at a, a party that I guess we're not allowed to talk about. So maybe I should. No, we're, allowed to, know. we're allowed to talk about. We're allowed to so, talk about it.
1: Yeah, closed notebook means that you cannot like harass people for quotes. Got you it. can talk about having been at the Netflix party. It was not a secret, but we are not allowed. We were not allowed to like accost people and talk to them for articles. We were out at the Golden Globes parties last night. We did not attend the ceremony. Uh, did watch it. The I mean, come on. Like, the Joe Coy thing. Like, my question for you, does this guy's career suffer from having one of the worst award show hosting debacles in history? It means he will not be invited <laughs>
0: back to host any he other award anything. show anytime He's soon. He's not getting a bar mitzvah in Brentwood. He's got a big audience for his stand-up. My guess would be that most of those people don't watch the Golden Globes and will not care that he bombed at the Golden Globes. That is
1: the right answer. I don't think his fans care about the Golden Globes. (laughs) It's the Golden Globes. It's almost funnier that he bombed so badly than if he was great. But we are not talking about the Globes. We are talking today about some of our burning questions for 2024. We did our end-of-the-year show, The Townies. We are back and looking ahead at the year to come. And we're just kind of texting, and like we have some open questions. And I was interested to get your feedback on some of the things. I'm not sure how they'll play out this year, and I think you were the same. So I'm going to start with a question, then you can come back at me, and then we'll kind of go from there. My first burning question is, how does the Disney proxy war pan out this year. If you haven't been following, Disney is now engulfed in a shareholder proxy battle. Nelson Peltz wants seats on the Disney board. He has enlisted two ex-Disney employees. I would call them disgruntled ex-employees, like Perlmutter, who used to run Marvel, and now Jay Rizzullo, who used to be the CFO of the company and left when he was passed over for the number two job. They are now clamoring for board seats. They want two board seats Bob Iger has countered. He brought in this other investor, Value Act, which is an activist shareholder. Can and... can we say he brought them in? I well, don't
0: know that... uh, he did <laughs> not. The board
1: brought them in, but Iger has a good relationship with Value Act. There's another one, Blackwell's Capital, which is nominating its own slate of potential board members, and they are sort of in the middle. They want their own group, but they don't like Nelson Peltz. So there's now an open feud amongst the Disney shareholders as to who should be on the board.
0: And I am wondering what you think is going to happen here. Bob Iger has taken a lot of steps over the last year to address Disney's problems. You can agree with them, you can disagree with them, but he's doing a lot. He has nominated a couple of eminently qualified people to the board of this company. And so I suspect that Bob will get his way in this case. Nelson Peltz, has yet to really explain the second time. Because if you remember, he sort of made some noise right after Iger came back. And this time around, he hasn't really suggested anything because I think most of his suggestions are what he made the last time, which Iger addressed. So I'm not sure what the critics' argument is or what their counter is, other than this company should be performing better, which we sort of can all agree on.
1: And he said in his statement, Peltz, that he wants to go back to 2015 when Jay Rizzullo was on the board and Disney was doing great. And everyone's like, yeah, of course. Everyone wants to go back to 2015 (laughs) in the television business. The business was doing well then. It's not doing well now. And that's across the board. So, yeah, I I mean, maybe they will outline specific things. They just want to cut costs. They want to fire people. They want to have more fiscal discipline. The question is, where is this going to settle? And it could either end with these guys going away. Proxy fights are very expensive. It could end up costing millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars to actually fight Disney and nominate a slate of board members and go to the shareholder meeting where these shareholders, you know, you think that the general business community loves Bob Iger, Disney shareholders love Bob Iger. He has done amazing things for them over the past 15 years. So I do think he will get the benefit of the doubt, even though the company is obviously facing a lot of troubles and they have not performed like some of the other companies have this past year, at least the stock where companies like Warner Discovery and Paramount and Comcast, they actually went up in their stocks this past year and Disney was basically flat. So I actually think that the two scenarios are Peltz and Perlmutter and Rizzullo go away. They claim victory or say that, oh, Iger's now doing things that he wouldn't have done if we weren't involved and maybe the stock went up a little bit. They can claim victory and go home. Or Disney compromises and Rizzullo gets the board seat. Nothing for Peltz or his son. And Rizzullo does join the board as a compromise. That's, those are the two scenarios. I happen to think they will go away and nothing will end up happening. I wonder if they will even officially nominate their slate or whether they will just kind of make some noise and, and end. But it could go either way. All right, what's your first question for me?
0: Is this the year that Bob Iger picks a successor? Uh, and <laughs> if so, do you have a favorite right now? I think there may be
1: people that are given more responsibility and it won't just be one person. It'll be several people. Like somebody gets moved into a chief content officer role while someone else perhaps gets a chief business officer role or something like that, where the pressure is not necessarily put all on one person because that's the problem here is everyone that Iger has quote unquote anointed in the past has ended up either disappointing him or become a threat to him and purged from the company or otherwise has left the company. And if he really is serious about this, this time, I don't know that you want to put
0: that on somebody or at least not overtly. Basically, what you're saying is rather than take one of the executives and make them sort of president, COO, whatever, which Bob Iger was once upon a time, and it would amount to a bake-off between a couple of different executives. Not necessarily
1: a bake-off, although the downside is that it's potentially perceived that way. That was a disaster. That has been a disaster in the
0: past, specifically at Warner Brothers. I was talking with someone last night who argued that the Warner Brothers situation worked out perfectly. Okay,
1: just to recap, Warner <laughs> Brothers, <laughs> under Jeff Bukas, they put three people in charge of the company. Kevin Sujahara ran the digital. Jeff Robinoff ran film and Bruce Rosenblum ran television. They were sort of a three-headed monster. It ended up that they, shocking,
0: fought each other. And both left. Jeff Ro- Robinoff and Bruce Rosenblum ended up leaving, and Kevin Sujahara right. got the job. And Kevin Sujahara, I think, was a somewhat fairly effective executive, but then he ended up needing to resign. because Yeah, he resigned his... in a sex scandal.
1: But yeah. So that's not <laughs> that effective. Didn't work. But...
0: <laughs> uh, but people were arguing that that actually ended up working. That was criticized a lot at the time. Look, bake-offs to me seem like a bad idea because it engenders sort of ill will between your people. Instead of mm-hmm. having them work together, they're sort of working against one another. But there are some leaders who really believe in that competitive dynamic in their workplaces.
1: Well, especially if you have people that have a specific skill set and you are asking them to do more, to work outside of what they know. And that's the problem at Disney. They, they have this bench of people, specifically Dana Walden, who runs TV, and Josh Jamarro, who runs Parks, and Jimmy Pataro, who runs ESPN. And those people don't have much experience in the other aspects of the Disney business. So if you're going to elevate one of them, you kind of want to give them the experience that they might need if they step into the top job. But then you don't want to potentially alienate other people. What I think they should do, give, other, give each of them a little bit more responsibility
0: and see how that works out. I mean, it's what Iger tried to do with Tom Sags. It's what Michael Eisner did with Bob Iger back in the day, right? Like Bob Iger didn't come in with all the experience. He got some time with training wheels, essentially, to, to yeah. learn different parts of running the business. Not to say that that's what he should do. You know, all three of those people you mentioned are going to need a little bit of time. And it's just up to him whether he believes that there's one who is clearly the option or whether, to your point, he should give them all a little taste.
1: Yeah, I just don't think Disney has the luxury of doing what was done with Iger. They don't have time. Iger has said that 2026 is the end game here. Or they look outside the company. I mean, I wrote a piece last week noting that the Mattel CEO, Enon Kreese, he is just sitting here in LA and has been on a run in Hollywood with Barbie. And like, you know, he's probably, his company's probably too small for him to be seriously considered, but he's now sold two specific companies to Disney. Knows the company well, Mattel's biggest partner. One of those, is, one of the, at least one of those sales did not go well. Just well, no. That's say. the <laughs> knock on him is that Maker <laughs> Studios was you know almost instantly a disaster for Disney. It was like a YouTube agency slash creator platform, and when Enon was at Disney, the system they set up did not make it so that people liked him. But my point is, this is a guy who is out there and could potentially be a candidate. CNBC pointed out that Andrew Wilson, the CEO of Electronic Arts, he also has relevant experience, and it's an area that Disney probably should be in, games, and they're not as big a player as they should be. Iger has tried several times, and games has not worked out. But maybe there are other candidates out there. They supposedly have this special committee of the Disney board that is... Focused entirely on succession. We have not heard any names leak from that search. Perhaps we will this year. But if uh, they're going to have this in place so that someone could take over in 2026, they got to get a move on. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including Outstanding Drama Series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. All right. Next question. Kind of Disney related, but it's a little broader (laughs) than that. Um, No, no, this is turning into a Disney pod. So 2024 is the year that NBA rights land somewhere. The NBA deal is up after the 2024, 2025 season. So the NBA has to pick a suitor or multiple suitors. The speculation is that they will go with additional partners other than disney slash espn and turner most people think that one of the partners will be a streamer Uh, the games will not all go to a streaming service but where do you think
0: these nba rights land and how are they divvied up i believe that the conventional packages which is Mm -hmm. basically you've got weeknight games i believe that tnt is tuesday thursday ESPN is some combo of Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Usually And then ESPN ABC often takes a Saturday and then they split the playoffs with the finals being an ABC. So the things that we know are that the NBA wants its biggest games and as many games as possible if they are on TV on broadcast. CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox. Sure. CBS and Paramount don't have the money. They're not going to bid for it. Fox doesn't really have the money and has never done basketball. They're not going to bid for it. That puts Disney in a good position because they can combine ABC with ESPN with some games on ESPN Plus streaming. I expect that Disney will keep the same package, if not increase it a little bit. There's been a lot of discussion of them taking NBA All-Star Weekend. That's sort of seen as a foregone conclusion. The big question is, how much more are they going to have to pay if they want to do that? And can Iger justify that given all the cost-cutting he's doing? Because the NBA is looking... They have talked about tripling their money. That's not going to happen unless like something crazy happens. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason to believe that they will increase their, their number significantly. The best way for them to do that is to bring in a third partner. And that is most likely either NBC Universal, which right. can offer the broadcast part of it with NBC or a tech company, Apple and Amazon being the most likely. I don't think we're at the stage where Netflix is really going to be something like this or both. I think they'll do both.
1: I think ESPN will expand the relationship. They will get All-Star Weekend. They will get more games. They will get the ability to put more on ESPN Plus. And they will replace Turner with a combination of Amazon or Apple and NBC. So you think Warner Brothers will be totally out of it? I think so. I I mean, look at their financials. If the ad market continues to go down, if the uncertainty around that company continues to weigh on it, they're not going to be able to compete.
0: I remain skeptical. And maybe this is the basketball fan in me, but Turner has the best studio show they do. All the, but but they also have contracts with those people that allow them to leave if they no longer air basketball. You could Yeah, of course. you can move, but there's a part of me that believes that they'll find a way to keep a piece of it. And the in-season tournament, they could put the in-season tournament somewhere else. That is the other wrinkle. Is the number could be bigger if they actually sell that as a discrete media package and someone comes in to take it. And the in-season tournament could be perfect for a streaming service because it's something that they can fully control, which is what yes. the streaming service is like. Netflix would love it. So you've been saying in your
1: newsletter that you think that the market for sports rights is really going to soften over the next year or two. But then we've seen example after example. Most recently, ESPN's deal with the NCAA. They got you know a tripling of those rights, $115 million a year for those rights. And that's not even football. And basketball championships. We've seen the women's sports getting a huge deal. We saw the WWE sell for a huge price to Endeavor. Like,
0: what evidence do you have that the sports market is softening? So it's funny that you say that because I actually, my initial take was not that when the WWE did its deal, I wrote a piece that was also looking at just how strong football ratings had been this year. Mm -hmm. And was sort of arguing that I think the there's all this talk about the sports market softening, but it seems like, at least in terms of football, it's stronger than ever. And so I didn't think it was that much softer. But the reaction to the WWE deal on Wall Street was very negative. And well, no, not
1: the acquisition. The reaction
0: to the, to the WWE right media deal. deal. Yes. yes. Where
1: they did their new deal with USA and NBC Universal.
0: That that reaction was that they should have gotten more. And most of what I have relayed more recently has just been like the anecdotal audience, like what people are saying about it. You know, that NCAA deal was very good. We're talking about relatively small dollar figures and also Mm -hmm. a deal that hadn't been negotiated in like 10 or 15 years. I forget how long it had been. Women's sports has been to some extent an exception here because the audience for that is growing. And I also think media companies are finally trying to to invest in that business. Well, and they had been getting such lower prices for a variety of reasons. But yes, the NBA and college football and the other WWE package and maybe UFC, these will be real bellwether moments. I think the market for sports is actually still reasonably strong. The issue is just most of these sports leagues want to be in business with companies that own broadcast networks. And most of the companies that own broadcast networks are financially limited. I think the state of
1: play right now is all these leagues want the tech company money but they still want the legacy media audience. And that's the balancing act right now. The NBA wants to bring in a tech partner like Amazon or Apple because they see dollar signs and they see the future and they know that these companies are the right companies to be betting on. But you can't give up the reach of linear yet. You just can't. It would be suicide for your fan base. I also think a big factor here is going to be what happens to the RSNs, the regional sports networks. Because ESPN would love to be the home of the local sports rights for your favorite team. Amazon would love that too. Amazon is moving to buy Diamond Sports, which has you know a bunch of RSNs that are troubled. And Amazon would like to be the place you have to go to get your local team. And then they'll do a deal to put them on broadcast for certain games and essentially take over that relationship. So that, I think, could be a big factor
0: here. Yeah, and I'll be curious with the Amazon, their number two sports exec, Marie Donahue, who had come over from ESPN, just left at the top of the year. And she was one of the people at that company with really strong sports relationships. I don't know if that affects Amazon's negotiations with any of these parties at all. Hmm. And, you know, the other factor is the streaming aspect. Did you see what New York is doing potentially with Yes and MSG coming together? I mean, every every local market needs to... Create one streaming service for local sports. If
1: LA has. If they can three, pull that off, but yeah. but I, what I think that this will be is, I think RSNs are essentially going to be end up being kind of luxury items for the markets that can't afford them. Like the big cities will still have RSNs, and then they'll come together and they'll do their local streaming thing, where they you know have all the teams on one service. You buy LA Sports Streaming Network, and you pay thirty bucks a month or whatever, and you get them all. And then some of the other markets that can't afford that won't be able to do it. And they'll have to partner with an Amazon or an Apple or something like that.
0: They'll still be the equivalent of an RSN. It just might not be sold as if by like an individual entity. Yeah, right. Because okay. you're going to need a place. If you live in Utah, you're going to need a place to watch the Utah
1: Jets. Yeah, but my point is that that might be Amazon or it might be Apple
0: and then they do a deal with the local broadcast network to put some games on broadcast. Right, but I think the way it would be sold via an Amazon or Apple would still, it'll be like a channel sold via Amazon channels where you would pay 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month or whatever it is to watch it via Amazon. I don't think you're going to end up getting it for free as like as a Prime bonus. I mm. could be wrong. There's too much potential money in the core. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, it's not going to be
1: part of Amazon Prime. You will have to pay an additional fee, which people will, Because they want to watch their local team unless, you know, they can't do exclusively there because you don't want to turn off the potential new fans you could get from broadcast. So there'll be some games on broadcast network as well, like a local channel. All right. Your question. Let's
0: do a little bit of awards talk. So the the Golden Globes don't really mean anything in terms of the Oscars, but Oppenheimer was the big winner. Sunday night. I think it is seen at this point as the prohibitive favorite at the Oscars. So my dual question is, can anything beat Oppenheimer And or related? Is there any surprise that you see in store for this award season?
1: First of all, I've been saying Oppenheimer is the presumptive favorite for a while now. I mean, it has all the makings of an Oscar night sweep. Huge, prestigious movie. Director who's never won. Made a billion dollars. Like, it is The kind of movie that wins Best Picture and then sweeps up everybody else. Having said that, the challenge now for the Oppenheimer campaign is you start to see the, well, is it really that good? Like the question is, has its momentum peaked with the Globes? I don't think that's going to happen, but there's a lot of these other award shows coming up. We've got the SAG Awards. We've got Critics' Choice. We've got the Oscar nominations coming out at the end of the month. And, you know, we could see a scenario where something like Killers of the Flower Moon is the number one nominated film. Then it would get back a little bit of momentum. The challenge for the campaigns is they need to adjust and they need to start messaging to account for the fact that Oppenheimer is the favorite. I think some of these campaigns are probably going to go negative soon. You're going to start to hear the whisper campaigns of like, really? Like, you know, Oppenheimer is a great movie for two hours. And then there's 45
0: (laughs) minutes on the end. Well, if Killers Good. of the Flower Moon attempts that criticism, then that would be true it. Would be hypocrisy. pretty rich. Yes, it would be. But I'm not
1: just talking length. I'm talking like the criticism on Saving Private Ryan back in the day was great first half hour, right. and then amazing. Is, fight it, scene. is it really best picture after that? Same thing happened with Gravity. I remember that year where everyone's like, "Oh my god, the you know the, the first twenty minutes is incredible," but like, what's it really about? What is it really about? I mean, I don't know what the campaigns are going to do here, but at this point, if I'm Netflix, if I'm Apple, if I'm these others, I, I start to, they, they, they've got to strategize here because it's a, it's an 800 pound gorilla and, you know, Bradley Cooper's face last night, losing time after time for Maestro and, you know, all the killers of flower moon, like they knew they were going to get Lily Gladstone, but they thought they were going to get something else too. Amazon was completely shut out last night. Like they've got some work to do on these campaigns.
0: Oppenheimer has it kind of competes across the board, right? Because it's a Nolan movie, it can, although it's not a traditional one in many respects, it can compete in some of the technical categories. It's got a pretty deep cast, writing, directing, obviously best picture. So there's not a lot of holes in its candidacy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the Barbie thing is interesting because some people thought Barbie could get the emotional support, having been the, the top movie of the year. People want Hollywood to succeed, and Barbie's like a fun commercial movie. I think
0: it's being exposed now as being sort of lighter and less. It's weighty. one of those movies that I think is going to get a bunch of nominations and mm-hmm. win like one or two. It'll like win the song one. And maybe something else as a token, maybe production design or hairstyling or whatever. I of mean, those. it does it probably deserves production design. That was really cool. I'd have to look at to think about all the different candidates. But yeah, mm. it deserves a couple of Oscars. But if you were to pick between Oppenheimer and Barbie for sort of the one with, both the commerciality and the heft—it's probably—it's yeah. really Oppenheimer is a throwback to when the one of the highest-grossing movies of the year would actually win the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah. What a concept! No, I know, I know, and that's—and I think that's why people are rallying around it. Were you surprised that Poor Things beat Barbie? Because the thing to remember about the Oscar campaign is it's the the guild awards that matter a lot more in building up yeah. the Oscars than the Globes, because that last night was basically what what you'd consider more in line with what the critics have voted.
1: Yeah, and honestly, Poor Things has a foreign director in Yorgos Lanthimos, and the Globe's voters showed last night that they're an international group, although the Oscars are too. So I am not surprised. I've been saying from the beginning Emma Stone is, is pretty fearsome in this category. I could see her even winning Best Actress over Lily Gladstone if the Killers campaign kind of starts to flounder. All right, well, we will see how these narratives play out throughout the year. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you see these Golden Globe ratings numbers? Yeah, is 9.4 million good in your mind or mediocre or bad? It was 9.4 million viewers, as you said, up 50% from last year's ratings, which uh, the show was on a Tuesday on NBC. This is the CBS number. They are claiming that it's the largest audience since 2020, and it's still down about half from the heyday of the Globes pre-COVID when they were getting 18 to... 20 million for a show and it was the top social program of the night. So I actually think that number is pretty good. Some thought it could get to 10 million viewers uh, with the NFL lead in and the big popular movies in contention. Do you think the
0: the new award, the Box Office and Cinematic Achievement Award, which they just gave to the movie that w- made the most money, Barbie, <laughs> do you think that was a success? Because it did get Margot Robbie and the Barbie cast on stage, uh, which is important. Do you think totally. it was a success?
1: Listen, it's the Globes. Nobody cares about the you know prestige. Like, sure, make up a new category, have the biggest movie of the year, win the biggest movie of the year. Uh, It it got Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig on stage. People got to see them, and they got to feel good about Barbie winning something. So, sure, why not? I mean, I don't think the Oscars should do it, but for the Globes, why not? My prediction today is actually about the future of the Globes. I think this number is good enough, this $9.4 number. I think CBS is going to bid to keep this show. It was a one-year deal, and I think they're going to try to lock it in for at least a few years. So I don't know if they'll get it, Others might come out of the woodwork, maybe Netflix, maybe Amazon, maybe others. But I think it makes sense for the Globes to stay on linear TV and have a streaming component that can be live streamed and milk the linear audience with a long-term deal at CBS. And I think they're going to do it.
0: And then if whoever Paramount merges with, if that is with a company that has their own streaming platform, then that would mean that the Globes would then most likely be streaming on, let's say they merge with Warner Brothers Discovery, then the Globes theoretically would be streaming on Max.
1: Sure. Yeah, whatever happens to Paramount Plus, if it's shut down, as some speculate, then it'll go to some other streamer. If it is merged with Max or with Peacock, then it'll go to those like whatever the future holds, then the show will go with it. But keeping that linear audience after football, which is one of the only things people watch on linear television, I think that's the smart move. Um, I don't know that going to Netflix or Amazon, even if they paid a little more money I don't know if that's the smartest move for the long-term health of the brand. And keep in mind, the owners of the Globes now, they want this brand to go around the world. They want to do Globe shows in China and Korea and Saudi Arabia and all these different places. Having a healthy show that people watch could be key to that branding around the world. Although I guess you could make the argument that putting it on Netflix would allow everyone around the world to watch the show on Netflix. But I don't know. It's still unproven whether people are going to watch live events on Netflix.
0: But uh, it feels well. anything you put on Netflix would be big. It just feels like Netflix is waiting to decide which which program they deem to be up to their standard to actually, you know, be the first thing they really. Well, they're doing the SAG Awards.
1: They're doing we're going to see in a couple of weeks uh, whether that Netflix gets a number out of the SAG Awards. That's uh, a big test. And if it does well, maybe they'll bid on the Golden Globes. But for now, at least the foreseeable future it makes sense to keep this in a streaming linear combo and good for the globes i guess i mean whatever <laughs> it is what it is
0: maybe joe coy was good for the globes everybody was talking about his bombing maybe that was actually a ratings driver
1: maybe they did it on purpose yeah maybe they they shoved a guy out there who was not ready for the you know prime time audience and <laughs> he got eviscerated which caused their social numbers to go up Yeah, look, if there's one thing people can bond over, it's somebody bombing. That's true. They don't reveal the minute-by-minute Nielsen's, although those exist. We've ordered them for the Oscars in the past when I was at Hollywood Reporter. They know exactly how many people tuned out after the monologue. My wife literally had to leave the room. I know. It was was cringy. I felt bad for everyone involved. I questioned my own watching of the show. Like, it was bad. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Holback our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week.